0: Chapter 9 More Motivation The eighth motivation to be content is this. Why are we not content with the possessions and life that we have? Perhaps if we had more, we would be less content. Covetousness is a dry drunkenness. The world is such that the more we have, the more we crave. It cannot fill the heart of man. When a fire burns, how do you quench it? We put it out not by putting oil in the flame or laying on more wood, but by withdrawing the fuel. When the appetite is inflamed after riches, how may a man be satisfied? Not by having just what he desires, but by withdrawing the fuel and moderating and lessening his desires. He who is content has enough. When someone with edema thirsts, how do you satisfy him? Not by giving him liquids, which will inflame his thirst even more but by removing the cause and so curing the illness the way for a person to be content is not by raising his estate higher but by bringing his heart lower the ninth motivation toward contentment is the shortness of life james said that life is only a vapor james 4:14 4, life is an ever-running wheel the poet's painted time with wings to show the turning and swiftness of it. Job compared it to a swift runner. Job 9:25. Our lives fly by and seem to be measured in days, not years. It is indeed like a day. Infancy is like the daybreak, youth is the sunrise, full growth is the sun in the meridian, old age is sunset, sickness is the evening, and then comes the night of death how quickly is this day of life spent? Often this sun goes down at noon. Life ends before the evening of old age comes. Sometimes the sun of life sets soon after the sunrise. Quickly after the dawning of infancy the night of death approaches. Oh, how short are our lives! The consideration of the brevity of life may work the heart to contentment. Remember, you are here only a day you have but a short way to go, and you do not need a long provision for such a short way. If a traveler has enough to bring him to his journey's end, he desires no more. We have but a day to live, and perhaps we may be in the twelfth hour of the day. If God gives us enough to bear our responsibilities until night, it is sufficient. Let us be content. If someone had the lease of a house or farm for just two or three days, and he started building and planting, would he not be judged very unwise? So, to thirst excessively for the world and pull down our souls to build up an estate, when we have just a short time here and death so quickly calls us off the stage, is an extreme folly. As Esau once said, in a profane sense concerning his birthright, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? Genesis twenty-five thirty-two. So let a Christian say, in a religious sense, Behold, I am even at the point of death, my grave is going to be made, what good will the world do me? If I have enough until sunset, I am content. The tenth argument to contentment is found when we seriously consider the nature of a prosperous condition, what happens when we are rich? There are three things that are in a fortune. First, there is more trouble. Many who have an abundance of all things to enjoy do not have as much contentment and sweetness in their lives as some who have only their hard labor. Sad and fearful thoughts often accompany a prosperous condition. Care is the evil spirit that haunts the rich and will not allow them to be quiet. When their chests are full of gold, their hearts are full of care, concern about how to manage, how to increase, or how to secure what they have. So much trouble and perplexity come with prosperity. The world's high seats are very uneasy. Sunshine is pleasant, but sometimes it scorches with its heat. The bee gives honey, but sometimes it stings. Prosperity has its sweetness, but also its stings. To have enough with contentment is far more desirable. Jacob never slept better than when he had the heavens for his canopy and a hard stone for his pillow. A large, voluminous estate is like a long, trailing garment, more troublesome than useful. In a prosperous condition, there is more danger. This shows itself in two ways. The first is in respect to the person himself. The rich man's table is often his snare he is ready to engulf himself too deep in these sweet waters. In this sense, it is hard to know how to abound. You need a strong brain to bear intoxicating wine. You must have much wisdom and grace to know how to bear a high condition. Either you will be ready to kill yourself with worry or gorge yourself with luscious delights. Oh, the hazard of honor, the damage of dignity! Pride, security, and rebellion, are the three worms that breed when you have plenty? Deuteronomy thirty two, fifteen. The pastures of prosperity are overgrown and overfed. How soon we are broken on the soft pillow of ease. Prosperity is often a trumpet that sounds a retreat. It calls men away from the pursuit of religion. The sun of prosperity often dulls and puts out the fire of zeal. How many souls has the disease of abundance killed? They that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare. The world is wet cement at our feet. It is full of golden sand, but it is quicksand. Prosperity, like smooth Jacob, will undermine and betray. If we are not vigilant, a great estate will be a thief to rob us of heaven. Those who are on the pinnacle of honor are in the most danger of falling. A lower estate is less hazardous, The little rowboat rides safely by the shore when the gallant ship advancing with its mast and topsail is cast away. Adam in paradise was overcome, but Job on the dunghill was a conqueror. Samson fell asleep in Delilah's lap. Some have fallen so fast asleep on the lap of ease and plenty that they never woke up until they were in hell. The world's fawning is worse than its frowning, and the world is more to be feared when it smiles. Than when it thunders. Prosperity in Scripture is compared to a candle. His candle shined upon my head. Job 29, 3. How many have burned their wings around this candle. When it is overripe, the corn sheds, and fruit, when it mellows, begins to rot. When people mellow with the sun of prosperity, their souls generally begin to rot in sin. How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. Luke 18:24. Their golden weights keep them from ascending the hill of God. Should we not be content that we are placed in a lower circle? So what if we are not in as fine dress as others? We are not in so much danger. As we lack the honour of the world, we also lack its temptations. Oh, there is such an abundance of danger in affluence. We see, by common experience, that when the moon is declining and waning, lunatics are sober enough, but when it is full, they are wild and more exorbitant. When men's estates are waning, they are more serious about their souls and humbler, but when it is the full of the moon and they have abundance, then their hearts begin to swell with their estates, and they are scarcely themselves. Those who write concerning the several climates observe that if you bring those who live in the northern parts of the world to the southern part, they lose their appetites and quickly die. But if you bring those who live in the more southern and hot climates into the north, their appetites and stomachs mend, and they live a long time. Allow me to apply this. Bring a man from the cold, starving climate of poverty into the hot southern climate of prosperity, and he will begin to lose his appetite for good things. He will grow weak and I wager all his religion will die. But bring a Christian from the south to the north, from a rich, flourishing estate into a low, barren condition, into a more cold and hungry air, and his stomach will mend. He will have a better appetite for heavenly things. He will hunger more for Christ. He will thirst more for grace, and eat more at one meal of the bread of life than at six meals before. This man is now likely to live and stand firm in his religion. Be content, then, with a modicum. If you have just enough to pay for your passage to heaven, it is enough. The second way a prosperous condition is dangerous is in regard to others. For the most part, a great estate draws envy to it, but where there is little, there is quiet. David the shepherd was quiet, but David the courtier was pursued by his enemies. Envy cannot tolerate a superior. Envious people know how to live only on the ruins of their neighbors. They raise themselves higher by bringing others lower. Prosperity is an eyesore to many. The sheep that have the most wool are soon fleeced. The barren tree grows peaceably. No one meddles with the ash or willow, but the apple tree and the plum tree will have many rude admirers. Oh, be content to carry a lesser sail. Those who have less revenue have less envy directed at them. Those who bear the fairest frontispiece and make the greatest show in the world are the bull's eye for envy and malice to shoot at. A prosperous condition has a greater accountability. Every person must be responsible for his talents. You who have great possessions in the world, do you trade your estate for God's glory? Are you rich in good works? Grace makes a private person a common good. Do you disperse your money for public uses? It is lawful in this sense to put our money to use. We all need to remember that an estate is a deposit. We are stewards of it, and our Lord and Master before long will say, Give an account of thy stewardship Luke The greater our estate, the greater our responsibility. The more revenue we have, the more accountability will be required. You who have a smaller business going in the world, be content. Where he has sowed more sparingly, God will expect less from you. The eleventh motive to contentment is the example of those who have stood out because of their contentment. Examples are usually more forcible than precepts. Abraham was called out to fiery service, and such as was against flesh and blood, was content. God told him to offer his son Isaac. This was great work, because Isaac was the son of his old age, the son of his love. He was the son of the promise. Christ the Messiah was to come of his line. In Isaac shall thy seed be called Genesis 21, 12. To offer up Isaac seemed to oppose not only Abraham's reason, but his faith too. For if Isaac were to die, The world, for all he knew, would be without a mediator. And if Isaac were to be sacrificed, was there no other hand to do it but Abraham's? Must the Father be the executioner? Must he who was the instrument of giving Isaac his being be the instrument of taking it away? Yet Abraham did not dispute or hesitate, but believed against hope and was content with God's prescription. When God called him to leave his country, Abraham was content. Some would have argued, "What? Leave my friends, my native soil, my excellent situation and turn pilgrim?" Abraham was content. And Abraham went blindfolded. He went out not knowing whither he went. Hebrews 11:8. God held him in suspense. Abraham did not know where he was wandering, and when he did come to the place God laid out for him, he did not know what opposition he would meet with there. The world seldom looks favorably on strangers. Yet Abraham was content, and he obeyed. He sojourned in the land of promise, Hebrews eleven nine. 9. Look a little at Abraham's pilgrimage. First he went to Haran, a city in Mesopotamia. When he had stayed there a while, his father died. Then he moved to Sikkim, then to Bethel in Canaan. There was then a famine in the land, so he went down to Egypt. After that he returned to Canaan. When he came there, it is true that he had a promise, but he found nothing to answer expectation. He did not have one foot of land there. He was an exile. During this time of moving around, he buried his wife. As for his dwellings, he had no luxurious buildings, but led his life in tents. All this was enough to have broken any man's heart. Abraham might have thought to himself, Is this the land I must possess? There is no probability of any good here. Everything is against me. Was he discontent? No. God said to him, Abraham, leave your country, and this word was enough to lead him all over the world. He was soon on his march. Here was a man who had learned to be content. But let us descend a little lower to heathens. Zeno, of whom Seneca spoke, had once been very rich. Hearing that all his goods were drowned in a shipwreck at sea, he said, Fortune has dealt with me and would have me now study philosophy. He was content to change the course of his life, to stop being a merchant and become a philosopher. If a heathen spoke this way, Should not a Christian even more say, when the world is taken from him, that God wants him to stop following the world and start studying Christ and how to get to heaven more? Do I see a heathen content and a Christian distressed? How did heathens vilify those things that Christians magnified? Even though they did not know God or what true happiness meant, heathens such as Aristotle and Plato spoke very sublimely of a spirit of Or deity and of the life to come. And for those Elysian delights, their final resting place that was real only in their imagination, they undervalued and condemned the things here below. That they should strive to be content with a little was the doctrine they taught their scholars and which some of them practised. They were willing to make an exchange, less gold for more learning. Should we not be content then? to have less of the world, so that we may have more of Christ? Christians should blush to see even the worldly heathens content with only provisions for the journey, but to see themselves so transported with the love of earthly things, that if the things begin to diminish a little, and the list of supplies grow short, they murmur, and are like Micah, Ye have taken away my gods which I made, and what is this that ye say unto me, What aileth thee? Judges 18.24. Have heathens gone so far in contentment? Is it not sad for us to come short of those who came short of heaven? These heroes of their time, how they embraced death itself! Socrates died in prison, Hercules was burned alive, Cato, whom Seneca calls the lively image and portrait of virtue, was thrust through with a sword. But how bravely and with what contentment of spirit they died! Shall I, said Seneca, weep for Cato or Regulus or the rest of those worthies who died with so much valor and patience? Did not cross-providence make them alter their countenance? Do I see Christians appalled and amazed? Did death not frighten them, but it distracts us? Did the fountain of nature rise so high? Will not grace, like the waters of a sanctuary, rise higher? We who pretend to live by faith, may we not learn from those who had no other pilot but reason to guide them. No, let me go a step lower, to creatures void of reason. We see every creature content with its allowance, the beasts with their food, the birds with their nests. They live only on providence. Will we make ourselves below them? Let a Christian go to school with the ox and the donkey to learn contentment. We think we never have enough and are still storing up. The fowls of the air do not store up; they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns; Matthew 6:26. It is an argument that Christ brings to make Christians content with their condition. The birds do not store up, yet they are provided for and are content. Christ asked are ye not much better than they?" Matthew 6:26. "If you are discontent, are you not much worse than they? Let these examples awaken us. The twelfth motive for contentment is that whatever change or trouble a child of God meets with, it is all the hell he will have. Whatever eclipse may be on his name or estate. I may say of it as Athanasius said of his banishment. It is a little cloud that will soon be blown over. He has crossed the gulf. His hell is past. Death is the beginning of hell for the wicked, but it puts an end to the hell of the godly. Ask yourself, what if I endure this? It is just a temporary hell. Indeed, if all our hell is here, it is an easy hell. What is the cup of affliction compared to the cup of damnation? Lazarus could not get a crumb. he was so diseased that the dogs took pity on him, and, as if they had been his physicians, licked his sores. But this was an easy hell. The angels quickly carried him out of it. Luke 16:19 to22If all our hell is in this life, in the midst of this hell, we may have the love of God. Then it is no longer hell, but paradise. If our hell is here, we may see to the bottom of it. It is only skin deep. It cannot touch the soul, and we may see to the end of it. It is a hell that is short lived. After a stormy night of affliction comes the bright morning of the resurrection. If our lives are short, our trials cannot be long. As our riches take wings and fly, so do our sufferings so let us be content. The thirteenth motive to be content is that to have sufficiency without contentment is a great judgment. When a man has a huge stomach, and no matter what food you give him he still craves and is never satisfied, you say, This is a great judgment on the man. You who are a devourer of money yet never have enough, and still cry, Give, give, this is a sad judgment. They shall eat and not have enough. Hosea 4.10 The throat of a malicious man is an open sepulchre. So is the heart of a covetous man. Covetousness is not only a sin, but also the punishment of a sin. It is a secret curse on a covetous person. He will first and first and never be satisfied. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Ecclesiastes 5.10 Is this not a curse? It was a severe judgment on the people of Judah. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Haggai 1.6. Beware of this plague. Esau said to his brother, I have abundance, my brother, or, as we translate it, I have enough. Genesis 33.9. Should not a Christian say so? Much more, It is sad that our hearts are dead to heavenly things and are a sponge to suck in earthly things. Let all that has been said work our minds to heavenly contentment.